0: Amen. Well, my um, reconversion to the Christian faith began uh, around 10 years ago now. And I say it began then because it feels like it's still ongoing today. Every day I wake up and I feel like I'm being reconverted to the Christian faith over and over again. But I do remember the moment it began. Not everyone has that, and I'm I'm grateful that I do have a moment where I can pinpoint and say, that's where it began. And it began uh, on the beach in my hometown in Worthing, uh, late one night. I was sat alone with my anxious thoughts, and I just prayed a little prayer, and that was that. I prayed, if you're really there, just let me know. If you're really there, just let me know. And what happened next Everything changed, but it wasn't in like a kind of big, uh, spectacular moment. It wasn't this cataclysmic event, this big thing that happened. It was small. The only way I can describe it is like a key being put into a lock, opening it, and the door opening just a crack, just enough to let the light in. That's all it was like. There was nothing spectacular about it. And in some ways, I'm jealous uh, for those for whom their conversion, if they have the moment like that, was like the door being kicked down and God just entering in, uh, this kind of cataclysmic event. I imagine it a little bit like um, uh, uh, the movie Alien. Anyone a a fan of Alien? Yeah, that bit of John Hurt's character. (laughs) I'm not sure. Um, The the John Hurt's character is like being thrown around, and this baby alien pops out of his chest. I imagine it's a little bit something like that. And that's certainly what it's like for St. Paul on the road to Damascus, this cataclysmic event. This catastrophe, a catastrophic event of phenomenally good proportions, that's what Tolkien would have called it, a catastrophe. But in another sense, I'm really grateful that my conversion's not like that, that it's gradual and that it comes in fits and starts and it's this, this steady thing because I'm not having to measure myself against something spectacular, but encountering Jesus in the mundane realities of life. And so conversion means turning from one orientation to another. It means pivoting, turning around. I know it's cliche to say, but the Christian life for me is a journey, or better still, a pilgrimage. And it's not necessarily a linear one. It's not a straight line. It's a continual back and forth. I take one step forward, I take two steps back. Sometimes I take two steps forward, one step back. Sometimes 10 steps forward, 100 steps back. Sometimes there's an obstacle that I think I've gotten around it, only to find that I've come back right in front of it again. Sometimes I've gotten past an obstacle and not even realized until I've looked back in hindsight and gone, oh, wow, where did that go? So much of my life, this pilgrimage of faith, is like that. And I desperately tried to keep my orientation fixed on Jesus, desperately tried to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus Christ, but I'm always wrenched back. Not always. But often wrenched back by shame, by guilt, by selfishness, by self-loathing, by pride, envy, greed, judgmentalism, idolatry, prejudice, all these things. And this is because even though I have been liberated and set free by the death of Jesus Christ on the cross, hallelujah, amen, I am still nevertheless enthrall to the power of sin and I'm complicit in its exploitations and abuses. Now, I could be wrong and I'd be surprised if I was, but I imagine everyone's journey of faith is something like that. Maybe not in the ways I've described it, but it's something like that. And this is because this is what um, Martin Luther, the, the German reformer, called simul justus et peccator. We are simultaneously justified and yet, sinful. Is describing the tension at the heart of the Christian faith. There's this tension, this back and forth. And Paul says in today's passage, "Your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with Him in glory." What does Paul mean there? Your life is hidden. And when Christ, who is your life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. What does that mean? Elsewhere, Paul uses the language of veiling, like a bride putting a veil over their face. Our lives are hidden from view, obscured, until that is that glorious day that Jesus returns to take us home. This is Paul describing the tension of the Christian life that pilgrimage, that toing and froing, that back and forth. As he says in 1 Corinthians, For now we see in a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know only in part, but then I shall know just as I also am known. It's because of this tension that the Christian pilgrimage has highs and lows. It's a little bit like an episode of Race Across the World. Has anyone seen that? a fantastic show, race across the world, they're racing, racing, you know, just watch it. And sometimes you get lost and you're despairing at your, your, your lostness. Other times you're unexpectedly refreshed by a divine encounter with some stranger who's just wandered into your life and absolutely blessed you beyond your imagination. Sometimes you get fed up and tired and you just want to give up and at other times you're sprinting with joy and gladness. In today's passage, Paul is addressing the undulating nature of Christian faith with its peaks and its troughs, living as justified sinners in the now and the not yet. The now of the triumph of God's love upon the cross and the not yet fulfillment of the ages when sin and death will be no more. God will be all in all. And every tear that has ever fallen across someone's face will be wiped away. That is not yet. So far in Colossians, Paul has been addressing the theory, uh, or you might call it his theology. So far he's been addressing the theory that Jesus Christ is the Lord and ruler of the cosmos, This Jesus is above all things. All things hold together in him. Everything is through him and for him. You don't need to look any further than Jesus to find God and everything else you've ever desired. All is there in Jesus. That's the theory. Now it's the practical. Now the rubber hits the road. Here Paul's ethics come into sharp Focus. And by ethics, I mean the practical outworkings of that theory. What does it look like on the ground that Jesus is Lord and ruler of the cosmos? And Paul is outlining that today, especially as it relates to our relationships. How should we relate to one another? And Paul frames this whole thing by talking about baptism. He uses the language and imagery of baptism, but it's not just an analogy or a metaphor. This is a lived-out reality. This is the real deal. Baptism is real. And it's fitting that today uh, is sandwiched in between two Sundays where we're doing baptisms. So last Sunday, we did a baptism at the Live at 10. May Parker, one of our youth, was baptized in the sea, uh, and that was uh, a joy. I got to be a part of that, and we were wading into the sea, and I was just batting jellyfish away. It was slightly terrifying, um, but... Thankfully, no one got stung at that point. Anyway, they did later on. Uh, But not during the baptism. We were safe then. So we had that last week. And then next Sunday, is it next Sunday? Yeah, it is next Sunday. Next Sunday, the 25th, we've got baptisms again. We've got several people getting baptized. Uh, And just so you know, there's only one service on that day. Don't come at 10 o'clock, don't come at 11.15, come at 10.30, we'll gather in here, we'll worship, and then we'll descend onto the beach, and um, God willing, the weather will be perfect and the sea will be clear and calm and not a jellyfish in sight. So come next week at 10.30. So baptisms. And May, uh, who, like I said, is one of our youth who we baptised last week, when she was sharing her testimony, she said something that really struck me. May said... I, she didn't. Well, she didn't say, I want to be baptized. She said, I want to become baptized. I want to become baptized. And at first I thought, that doesn't quite sound right. But then I realized, no, she is absolutely right about becoming baptized. Baptism is not a one-off event. It's not something that happened to you. It is something that is constantly happening to you. It's a whole different way of being and living in the world. It's it's an indelible mark and an affirmation of God saying through his church, you are mine. Baptism is this indelible permanent mark on you. So you could say you're being washed and baptism is constantly washing over you and it can never be washed out. And so, as Paul has already stated in chapter 2, verse 12, in your baptism, you have been buried with Christ Jesus in his death on the cross. But not only that, you have been raised in Christ through the faithful works of God, who raised him from death. So, our lives are in Christ Jesus. We are already in him by virtue of what he has done. And baptism is a recognition of that reality. That is your reality now. You, all of you, are in Christ Jesus. We often sing that song that goes, it's your breath in our lungs, so I pour out my praise, I pour out my praise. It's your breath in our lungs, so I pour out, I'm not going to try and sing it because I can't sing in tune at all. Um, You just have to listen to my old band to work that one out. And so here's the clincher. Here's what Paul is building up to. He's essentially building up to this. If your life is not your own, but is Christ's, then it matters what you do with your body and with your words. If your life is not your own, but is Christ's, then it matters what you do with your body and with your words. And consequently, if your neighbor's life is not their own, but is Jesus's life, then it matters what you do to their body and what you do to them with your words. So continuing his ethic for the baptized, Paul then gives us a list of two sins. He's hung out the dirty laundry and he's gone, right, look at this. Two sins, 11 in total. And let's just recap and recall what sin is for Paul. Sin is an evil, parasitic power that enslaves and destroys. It's an evil, parasitic power that enslaves and destroys. St. Augustine, who's the most original thinker on original sin, this kind of African powerhouse, he called sin and evil a privation of the good. Sin has no power or being of its own accord. Rather, it latches onto God's good creation and distorts it and disrupts it and mutilates it. J.R.R. Tolkien, a kind of personal hero of mine, along with St. Augustine, Uh, you can see how he was working this out when he was creating Middle-earth, and he created the elves who are glorious and beautiful, these kind of majestic beings who are actually also slightly annoying. Uh, And then they're, they're, they're corrupted, and they're mutilated, and they're distorted, and then they become orcs. That's what the power of sin is a bit like. It disrupts, it mutilates, and it distorts. On the other hand, us sin, or our sins, plural, they are what we might call complicity in that power, rolling over to that power, letting that power be and exist in the world. And they're not always conscious, we're not always aware of our complicity in sin's schemes and in the structures of sin, because these things are often systemic, institutionalized, they're built into the fabric of society. And this is partly what Paul means when he talks about the, um, the powers and the principalities, the way that sin has corrupted and invaded every level of life. So, Paul then talks about these sins, our complicity in this power of sin, and he breaks it down into two categories. They are, first, the sins of exploitation, and second, the sins of abuse, And they all have to do with how the Colossians are relating to one another and the world around them. The sins of exploitation are essentially all about how we treat others with our bodies. And the sins of abuse are all about how we treat others with our speech. So the first six on Paul's list. I'll try not to dwell on this for too long because it's not particularly joyful. The sins of exploitation, these are classic Roman vices. Remember, we're going to situate Colossians in context, where it is in the Roman Empire, in the Roman world, uh, Roman culture, Greek culture, all these things mixed in. Classic Roman vices. He lists them as fornication or sexual morality, as it's often translated, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. I counted the last one as two. Here, Paul has in mind mainly sexual sins common to the Roman world. Such so things like prostitution, as things like adultery, and worst of all, the kind of institutionalised sexual exploitation of children, known as pederasty, that was common in Roman world, believe it or not. Uh, Emperor Nero, uh, the one that John the Revelator dis- uh, alludes to as the Antichrist in his apocalyptic vision on the prison island of Patmos in Revelation, you can read about it there. Uh, he called. Uh, nero the antichrist because of how much nero hated christians with a passion he used to turn them into candles and light street corners with them Uh, nero was said to have 300 concubines and 300 boys for such purposes and if the emperor was doing these things then it was just in vogue that was just part and parcel of the culture so those are the sins of exploitation the other five are sins of abuse wrath anger malice, slander, and abusive language. Here, Paul has in mind those things that tear relationships asunder, things, things that destroy unity, things that are antithetical to peaceful, loving relationships. And of all these things, Paul says, put them off. Put them off. Put them to death. Crucify them with Jesus Christ on the cross. Put them to death. In the baptismal ceremonies, so Paul again is using baptism here. In the baptismal ceremonies of the, of the first century, the, the candidates for baptism would stand at the shore and strip off uh, into the nude. They'd wade into the water. They would be dunked under the water, and that was the sign that they, they were participating in the death of Jesus. They go down into death, into the tomb. And then they come up out of the water, resurrected, if you will. And then, once they'd been resurrected out of the water, they'd participated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. They walked back out to the shore again, where they'd been given a brand new set of robes. And most common folk in the ancient world only had one set of robes. So, this was like putting on a whole new self. And that's what Paul is getting at here. Put these things off, leave them at the shore. They have no part of you. Put them to death. Put off your old dirty robes, Paul says, because that is not who you are any longer. You are Christ's. The exploitation of others, whether for sexual gratification or for wealth or for pride or for greed, all of it must stop. That disunifying abuse, that alienating abuse of others, that gossip. All of it must die. Those exploitative and abusive relations can have no part of you because you have been claimed by Jesus Christ and they have no part of him. He who does not exploit and abuse others but gives himself to them wholly, fully, freely, unconditioned, without warrant, without merit. And he does so to heal them, to redeem them, to reconcile them, undoing all the things of the power of sin. And this is why Christians, I think, should really be at the forefront of uh, all endeavors to end exploitation and abuse in the world. And it's not much of a stretch of the imagination to think about how these things relate to us today. What I think Paul would highlight today is our Perhaps our polarizing political rhetoric. I'm really exhausted of that. Our lust for instant gratification. An ever-expanding consumer market. Things like pornography, racism, fast fashion, nationalism, climate change as well, which uh, disproportionately affects the poorest people on the planet. I could go on. But I imagine Paul yelling at us from heaven saying, put them off! Put those things to death with Jesus on the cross. And so let's lighten the mood a little bit. We're going to put those things off. But remember, when we come out of the water, we put something on again. We're robed with a new identity. So we put off these exploitative and abusive things and put on our new baptismal life. The claim that Jesus has on us, we put it on. So here's what I'm going to to read out this bit of Colossians. uh, And I want you to close your eyes. And I've changed it ever so slightly so that it reflects us. So each day we can wake up and say to ourselves and pray over ourselves as God's chosen and not rejected, holy and not cursed, beloved and not despised one. I clothe myself not with indifference, but with compassion. Not with hostility, but with kindness. Not with self-righteousness, but with humility. Not with ego, but with modesty. Not with indolence, but with patience. I will not hold a grudge, but I will bear with the very one I take issue with. I will not villainize and condemn the one who has an issue with me, but I will forgive them as Christ has forgiven me, as Christ has not condemned me. And above all else, even if you just say this one bit when you wake up in the morning, I put on love. I put on love. I put on Jesus Christ. For as John says, God is love. Those who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. I put on love. For Paul, this is not simply because these are admirable qualities that we should want to emulate, but because they are the qualities of who you already are in Christ Jesus. So Paul is saying, step into that reality. Live into that reality and the way you relate to others and yourself. Because Jesus is who he says he is. Because Jesus is what he is. Because Jesus has done for you what you could not do for yourself. Because Jesus has liberated you from enslavement to sin. Because you have been incorporated into his death and his resurrection. Because Jesus has loved you with an unstoppable, irresistible love, therefore, turn to face him. Therefore, convert yourselves to him again, where he is enthroned at the right hand of God the Father. Therefore, live your lives in response to him and to what he has done for you. Therefore, love your neighbor as he has loved you. And I know this isn't always easy. I do think praying that over yourself in the mornings, I wake up each day and I can just about muster, because I've normally woken up at five in the morning by a toddler climbing on my face. And normally all I can muster for prayer in the morning is, this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. And today I put on love. Today I put on love. This isn't always easy. Life is a tumultuous, undulating pilgrimage after all. But I have confidence and hope in this one thing. That the Jesus that I encountered on the beach 10 years ago, the Jesus who is your life, he just keeps on turning up. He just keeps on turning up. He will not leave me alone. He will not leave you alone. So turn to face him again. It has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus and his persistent presence. Amen.